Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA Podcast Show. And today I am excited to interview Rick Kahn, VP of Solutions at Verve Industrial Protection, for another in our series of security leader interviews. If you've not been with us before, you know that the goal of this season of, of the show is to really find out various people's story. How did they get where they are today? What decisions do they make? And we hope that it is interesting to everyone in the industry to hear people's personal stories, but also we hope it is very impactful to many of you who are making career decisions. And you can pick from some of these interviews things that you might choose to do to enhance your career and move your uh, move yourself forward. So Rick is a, uh, you know, fundamentally, he's a, he's a father and a husband and uh, an outdoorsman. Uh, he lives in a great part of uh, Canada, which we'll talk about where he can get, get to beautiful outdoors and do hiking. But he's also a, a hockey fan and a, a dog lover and a traveler and a boater uh, and a well-rounded guy. He's a straight talker. He's known for, for just getting right to the heart of the matter and sharing what he thinks in an honest, authentic way. And near and dear to my heart, he's also a, uh, a smoker. Uh, I, I started that when I moved to Georgia, and we, we both have big green eggs. And if you don't know what that is, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. But if you're a smoker, you know what they are. And so anyway, welcome to the show, Rick. Oh, thank you. Pleasure to be here, Derek. It's always great to, to chat with you. And you're right. They, we, we both get to know more about each other every time. I guess we're, uh, we're like onions. Hey, there's layers. We got to just keep peeling back and learn more and more about each other. So. Well, absolutely. And I, that has been one of the greatest uh, uh, outcomes for me for doing these is even people I've known for some years, uh, sometimes, you know, 20 years, I still have learned things that I didn't know. And, and, and that's just an honor and a privilege to be able to do that. And you all have had great things to share. I mean, every single one of these episodes, there's been at least one what I call golden nugget. And it's like, bam, there is something that uh, there are certainly many people out there could emulate or choose to do as well. That might enhance their career um, or just give them a new idea of a direction they could go. And we have people in our in our community at all levels, uh, but certainly at the entry level or at the early stage of their career, we have we have plenty of those folks. And uh, and so taking the wisdom of the few and sharing it with the many is certainly one of the goals that I have for the show and for CSA in general. So um, you're you're a great candidate for doing just that. You've been at this problem space for a while and uh, mm-hmm. and you're and you're a heck of a nice guy. So hey, you, you know we'll, we'll take that too. <laughs> Yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> Friends we can talk to. Uh, no, no, uh, no. Pre- again, appreciate the opportunity. CSA is a great to me. It, it's the epitome of 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 what this market needs and what I try to do. So you know, uh, and that is educate and share because there's not enough uh, awareness and not enough people and not enough activity. And so the more we can do it, the better off we all are collectively. So I appreciate the opportunity. Well, awesome. Let's get into it. So I always start with the same. You know, sort of statement that uh, some of the superheroes today are are cybersecurity professionals, and every superhero <laughs> has a backstory. So, what is your what is your backstory? Uh, I think you grew up in in Edmonton, Canada, right? I did Edmonton, Alberta, the largest uh, city uh, just outside the Canadian oil stands. So, uh, I always I remember um, being in Texas once at A uh, and M with all the Aggies and the and the Longhorns arguing at a conference, and I said, well. You're all from Texas, so I can offend you all equally by pointing out that my province is bigger than your state, and my capital building is taller than yours, and I do oil and cattle too. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up in Western Canada, Prairie uh, Prairie Town, a lot of snow, cold, dark winters. Born and raised, uh, I now live in Calgary, just a couple hours south, and and so I have to fight local hockey fans about whose team is better because obviously it's better where I came from. But um, yeah, it's. Um, been a pretty interesting uh, world to, to to grow from and, and I've been afforded the luxury of going everywhere uh, with this job and so we'll get more into some of those and where we've seen and what we've seen but uh, it's always fun to swap stories with people like yourself that have been around different places. 
Well, awesome. Yeah. Well, let's 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 unpack some of that. Hockey, that's that that round thing with a stick and they hit it, right? Is that is yeah, that- yeah, that ice hockey, by the way. I need to point out every time we talk to somebody from a US college, like, oh, you mean field hockey? I'm like, no, no, no. Much, much faster and more dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, I must admit, of, of the professional sports I've enjoyed uh, in, in the past, being a regular at for a while, when Columbus, Ohio, where I used to live, uh, got its first hockey team, I got into that, and I really enjoyed going to the rink and uh, and uh, and going to games there regularly. That was that was a lot of fun. It's a passion. Atlanta had one for a while, but they just didn't have enough uh, season ticket sales, so they lost yeah. theirs, unfortunately. Well, and we're so far south in Atlanta, I think the ice probably kept melting. But now that's that's another problem. <laughs> Um, so let's talk Tell about that to Tampa. <laughs> Tell that to Tampa. <laughs> Anyways, I always ask people, you know, what their first job was. And I'm, I'm sort of like meaning early, just it's, it's sort of curious. People mowed lawns and did all these different things. What, what did you start doing you know, to, to as work? Interesting origins. I mean, everybody had like a paper out, I think, whether it was paid yeah. or volunteer. And then, and then when I actually got to, you know, go to a building and get paid and pick up a paycheck, it was more, uh, I believe it was a banquet waiter, right? You know, where you go to the you go to the, the wedding and it's plated or it's a buffet and you clean up and stuff like that. So just really glorified, you know, assistant to clean up dishes. We called ourselves porcelain sanitation technicians, right? So that we were making, yeah. So we made sure that we take care of stuff and get it cleaned up and the tables were clean and, you know, we'd run around and it was, it was, a, it was fun. We were all 14, 15 years old and we all knew each other from high school, but uh, it wasn't exactly a career. Those, those hours and that, that uh, back breaking on your feet, running around work sort of thing is quickly uh, taught me to maybe look towards some sort of more professional eventual landing space. That's for sure. Let's talk about that. So I, I'm curious, I know that I already know a little bit about you. I know that you, you don't go into a technology degree um, is technology introduced at all during during your early years or not yet? So funny enough, in grade five, four or five, I was in a four or five split small school and the teacher's like, hey, you kind of get tech. So I was the, the the computer lab administrator for the grade four on Apple IIe's. Uh, and I remember <laughs> writing a program that kind of looked like Galaga, where you did the arrows left and right and the space bar to shoot things. Uh, so yeah, you could say, I mean, I wasn't a whiz at it or anything, but, uh, it certainly has been around for a while. Yeah. Oh man. I remember those old school networks and just the rudimentary stuff we were doing. That was exciting at the time. I think the big thing that one of these things that just is in my mind is, is when somebody taught me that the, uh, was it five and a quarter? What, what were the large ideas? Five and a half copies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you took a paper hole punch and clipped out a little plastic piece on the other side where the little indentation was, you could double side. They were, in fact, yeah. double sided. I mean, they were yeah. a bit ready for double siding. They just wouldn't read unless that little plastic thing was clipped out with a paper hole yeah. punch. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you uh, you go to school, University of Alberta. And I think this is really important for, for people who may be tuned into the show that are saying that are either recently graduated or in, in college and say, oh, I'm not, I'm not in a technical degree. You know, could I ever get into this industry? You know, you have a story that doesn't start with a technical degree and ends up in this, in this arena. Yeah, exactly. Yep. You're absolutely right there. I actually had started um, in uh, an arts degree in university. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be when I grew up, but needed to get to school and not just hang out as a bartender and, you know, party all weekend. Took a few years and I thought, Hey, it would be really cool to be a sociology professor. 
Uh, I was in a Bachelor of Arts program anyway, and sociology was really cool. I get to write swear words into my essays because as long as you backed it up with, you know, I once compared iced tea to uh, to Spike Lee and how they, you know, approached, uh, you know, common societal norms. And so I thought it was really cool. And it wasn't a real job you got paid for. And then I found there was a lot of politics Then you had to be published and all this other stuff. And so I went to the guidance counselor. The guidance counselor says you have an affinity towards, you know, math and technology and you can communicate fairly well. And I remembered back to my Apple IIe days, right? I was a decent, you know, programmer. So I went and I started looking and I, I, um, I tried a Bachelor of Science uh, at the U of A. And then I quickly decided that um, for technical hands-on training, you probably should go to an actual college. I went to a Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, um, sister association to where Mr. Byers built Tofino and BCIT. So uh, I'm at NAIT. And um, I took network engineering. And then from there, I managed to land a job as uh, in, in, a, in a technology company that was focused on industry. That's kind of sort of how I went from social and sociology to, you know, practical hands-on. It's everywhere. Technology is literally everywhere. And, and, you know, you look 20 years later and I will tell people that, you know, you can have an entire career and a specialty within technology alone, just in databases or just in websites or just in networks. It's, it's that complex. But it's also that much of an opportunity you talked about you know making sure that people know about opportunities i'm constantly pitching even in my daughter's hockey team a bunch of young 15 year old girls hey you should get into cybersecurity. they roll their eyes and wait till i'm done talking but you know <laughs> i'm trying so anybody can do it i think you know i uh, i'm guilty of the same thing saying it's an incredible opportunity in the future uh the problem is not getting solved tomorrow uh nope. i would i would posit that it's not getting solved maybe ever we're not going to arrive at we're secure you guys can all go home now. So yeah, yeah. you've got a lot of good future, uh, future job potential. Um, yeah. about the, the, so the leap, with somebody's in an undergraduate degree, and so you decided to go pursue this technical. Uh, it, so when you went to Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, that wasn't a four-year thing. That was a couple years? It's a two-year. So they started with the two years. It's very technical. It's the exact opposite of, of, of U of A. Like the U of A Bachelor of Science says, Let's go learn about math, but first you're going to do this theoretical math, and you're literally going to watch a video of a guy recounting how he solved Fermat's last theorem. And I thought, well, that may be somewhat interesting. It's not at all practically applicable. Um, and so when I went to Nate, they actually had us program chips on boards. They had us look at logic. They had us look at electrical paths. They had us then also do a project management thing because you're going to be having to explain from tech or geek to English, right? Um, and they had all sorts of, you know, sort of a well-rounded thing. And so I jumped to that for a bit, knowing that I at least had a bachelor's degree already in case I needed to go somewhere else. Um, and Nate has since built a bachelor's program or equivalency. You can go back and do another year and do sort of a, a curriculum. So you don't, if the listeners, are, you know, you're concerned about the listeners not wanting to get to just a technical diploma that may not equate, there are graduate level equivalents of what I did. This was 20 years ago now, right? So um, there are graduate level capabilities like that as well that I think are very, very valuable to, to pursue. And that didn't require you to have much in the way of technical prerequisites. You know, went from psych, you know, sociology to that. No, I, I had decent enough marks. You know, prior to university in my math and sciences, anyway, that I just yeah. I applied. And in between my proposal letter and a couple of references and you know my transcript sort of thing, I was able to make it. The prerequisites weren't that bad. That particular. College is a common first year and then a specialized second year. So once you were in the first one, as long as you did okay, you could kind of pick your second. Yeah. And I picked working because I, I didn't want to sit at a cube and do programming and stare at a wall with headphones on. Not a, No offense to programmers. They are legitimate geniuses when you find the good ones. 
but I much more social. I, I, I wanted to do something more along the networking where I would work with people and figure out their problems and design a solution for them sort of thing. So that's kind of my, uh, an affinity towards that, but no technical prereq necessary. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, that's an interesting takeaway. I think uh, of all the interviews I've done so far, that's another nuance to sort of the, the path. None of your paths are identical. And no. so that's where somebody could then, yeah, go, go seek something. Now there's far more cybersecurity programs as well that yeah. didn't exist and they exist now in many uh, credible places. So you can yeah. go and you can augment, whatever it is that they study, whatever their formative college uh, degree was in, they could go augment with something that's not as big a time commitment and then leap from that into, in, like you said, into many different subsectors or, or sections of, uh, of this, which I find exciting. I think yeah. I shared your, your idea that it's not like you need to become a master of all of this. In fact, you could go off in directions and more often than not, and we'll get well, at the end of the end of the session, I asked about sort of future gazing a little bit, but with machine mm -hmm. learning and AI and all these sort of really interesting quantum computing, there's, there's stuff that's just just coming right now that's going yeah, to be exciting. Yeah. Just made me think of something. Here's another topic for a debate someday. Maybe we want to do a panel session. Cybersecurity as a, as a discipline. I once equated because I went back to Nate and I part of the um, uh, advisory committee and the steering committee to to revamp the the curriculum for future classes. Right. I was one of the advisory panels for that for that course once I graduated from it. And one of the things I advocated, especially at a technical school, the parallel, we always talk about the parallel to safety. If I were to go take welding at that school, I would have a safety course very first and foremost. And there would be 10% of my mark on every project after was geared on whether or not I did safety correctly. Should cyber be treated that way in anything we're taking for technology, as opposed to its own discipline that's isolated and, and siloed or bolted on after the fact? My view is yes. I think cyber should be a component of everything. I'm going to build a database. I'm going to build a website. I'm going to architect a network. There should be 10% that says, did you do it securely? I'm on my soapbox fully now. I get it. <laughs> but this is one something I'm passionate about that, um, you know, as a, as a podcast or panel challenge, I'd love to come back and debate that with some of your other, uh, some of the other fellows, uh, if that's an option. But to me, you know, security needs to become an underlying table stakes to anything we do. Yeah, there's specialties within it, machine learning and incident response and uh, threat intelligence. But the basics uh, need to be there, and I think everything. So, you know, to your point, I can go and specialize in anything, but cyber itself probably should permeate at least everything to some extent. Oh, well, I, I just wrote some notes down. I think that's going to be an excellent panel. It's not the first time the success of safety culture has come up, uh, yeah. but this idea of doing a panel and a discussion, like how much can we emulate what, what they did over quite a bit of time to go from yeah. high safety? High, you know, quite a few, I guess, safety incidents, right? Uh, I don't know if it was in the 70s or whatever. And they said, we can't keep having this, right? Even loss of life. So safety mm -hmm. culture became ingrained in, in yes. certain industrial verticals. It became absolutely how things are done, right? And so can, yeah, what can we emulate from that? I don't know that it's one, to, it'd be a great debate because, you know, probably as soon as somebody says, we should do exactly the way they did that, there'll probably be somebody that says, here are some exceptions. It's not quite the same. But there's clearly some stuff that could be taken from that. Oh, yeah. And I always joke when I'm on a panel or at a presentation, I said, the day I drive up to your operating facility and I see two signs, one that says X number of days since safety incident and one yeah. since we patched a critical patch sort of thing, you know, <laughs> this 485 days since last safety incident, 1200 days since we last patched a critical vulnerability, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that, we agree. All right. We well, agree. so you go from Nate to Honeywell and uh, and unlike some who security and industrial control systems or one or both of those merge into their career path later. Sometimes it's security and later industrial comes in or it's industrial engineering and later security. You jump right in and there's not many people that can say 21 years ago. Uh, you jump right into security 
fairly early, it sounds like in the Honeywell experience, security for control systems was what you were starting to focus on. And that's early. Yeah. So uh, a little background on how that happened. I, I graduated from Nate and a couple of buddies had already had interviews at Matricon. I don't know if you remember Matricon. Matricon was based in Edmonton. Actually, its headquarters were there. And I actually got hired as internal IT, so help desk, junior help desk guy, changing passwords, setting up new, new, new users. We had fairly quick turnover there. Honey, our Matricon was, you know, trying to be bought and trying to develop software. So the last two places that got money were HR and, and IT. Um, everything else went to sales and development and R&D. So, so we had a quick turnover. I quickly found myself at the lead. Uh, didn't have any money to really build new things. So I had to switch to customer service. And I'd done 10 years of hotel and restaurant to that point. Our team won a few internal awards for customer service and helping solve problems. We got the attention of some upper management. And so one day the CEO came to me and said, hey, I think we need to do ICS security for to go along with the loop tuning and the alarm management programs that we were doing because we were going into operating facilities and putting exceptions and firewalls to get data to flow and stuff like that. And he said, I think you should do that. Are you interested? And I said, yeah. He goes, do you want to do it? I said, sure. I said, so what do I do? And he said, well, I, I literally just hired you to tell me that. So go figure it out and come tell me what we're doing now. So now, luckily enough, our, our friend, Donovan, um, had done the, the bachelor degree at Nate. He'd gone back. And came to Nazar and said, hey, I think we should pursue this. So it was the timing was great. And we he sort of joined us together. Originally, Don was on the sales side and I was on the tech side. So we quickly flipped that to put the right person in the right spot. Um, and it sort of grew from there. And so I went from internal IT to, OK, how do I find dollars to help clients solve problems? And so we started with, um, you know, assessment, building roadmaps and guidance and governance. And, and NERCSIP came along. And so there was a sort of a driving need, but also a defined checklist. And so we sort of kind of fell into that. We started building some bigger and bigger projects. And then suddenly Honeywell took notice. And that's where we got accelerated to the big guy. Um, I got thrown into a global role. My, I had a small team of about 12 technical people. Uh, and I was doing sort of BD and value prop, et cetera. When that happened, I went and worked with the other BD guys globally for Honeywell. And the tech guys went for the technical guys reporting out of Atlanta, in fact. And we just, yeah, and we just started to grow. So um, my colleague, my former colleague lives not too far from you and, uh, and and runs the Honeywell Lab there in Atlanta. Well, let me, let me write that down. <laughs> <laughs> I can introduce you. Like, I'm right, yeah, okay. that's. I'm right, okay. So for the for listeners who aren't, you know, who don't see the video of this, it's just like I'm I'm pausing to write notes because Rick keeps giving me great ideas about, oh yeah, we should follow up with that. No, we should do that too. So that's, mm. uh, Oh boy, that's how it is. Um, okay, so uh, a pretty nice run at Honeywell, well, Matricon slash Honeywell uh, over a mm-hmm. decade. Yeah, so honey, I started at Matricon in 01, and I think about 09 or 010 is when we got bought. And then I stepped away for a bit. I went and joined an owner operator. I actually worked for an air separation company that made hydrogen, nitrogen, sorry, nitrogen, liquid oxygen, et cetera. Aspen Air? Yeah, yeah. and that ended spectacularly uh, horribly. And it well, it, it's hard to be a viable company when the CEO is lining his pockets with the bills that are supposed to be paid. So anyways, yeah, we'll, we'll leave that for another day. Yeah, so then I, I, I went back to, uh, I wanted to go back to what, what I was good at, which is which was this. And I mean, I, I was doing it there. I was helping to build our infrastructure, but also to sell our product and the, to work with other uh, entities. But Along came my friend John, um, John Livingston, and it was funny. Such a small world, this market we're in. I don't know if you've heard this story, Derek, but I'm going to tell it. Um, I know it's maybe a bit of a longer story, but 
when I went to work for, for when I was looking for work, um, John Livingston had reached out, John's our CEO, and he had just bought a significant stake in the, in the company that had been built actually 30 years ago. And the company was called RK Neal. Uh, now, funny enough, when I was in internal IT, I helped build, and build out our St. Louis office. And our St. Louis office was built primarily around an anchor power client that we had there. And the anchor client was what we sent a VP down there and built an office around. A couple of years later, the VP that we sent down there scooped that client and about a half dozen employees and left uh, uh, Matricon to go work for another vendor in this space. I won't name who posed to, but they took the client with them. And then once that VP and the new outfit didn't do so well at serving that client, this, this upstart guy, RK Neal, comes out of nowhere. His name is Bob Beavis. Uh, Bob Beavis was a former GE Westinghouse. He's an electrical engineer. Um, he'd been working with EEI and EECI and PSGC and all these places. Suddenly he comes running in and he wins back that big client, takes it away from this, this you know, not so great environment. I remember the time kind of laughing like, oh, yeah, because we felt, you know, betrayed by the guy taking our anchor client. And we still didn't have it, but at least he didn't have it anymore. Turns out, fast forward, here's John who bought into RK Neal. And I'm now going to be employed by the company that was this upstart guy way out in the middle of nowhere that I'd heard about or run across, you know, 15 years ago. So it's a really small world, you know, this space. You want to be careful who you who you talk to and, and how you do it. But uh, um, John bought three quarters of the company. Um, and I joined about five years ago now. We have doubled and doubled in the last five years, even despite COVID. And, and to me, wearing my practical hat, what I tried to build at Matricon is anybody can sell you a software or widget or, you know, try to transfer, you know, paper or software services for POs. When you actually make a difference is when you help build sustainable programs. And Verb is a different approach. It's, it's much more of a programmatic approach. Um, and it's what I was hoping Matricon was going to build. And then we got, we got bought by Honeywell sold. Oh, you have an idea and Honeywell's got money. This is going to be perfect for you. But nine or 12 months later, I'm still pitching the same thing and nothing's moved. Right. So I kind of fast forwarded by going here. And I think we've got a much, much better view of what the future of security looks like. I'm not trying to put my, my day job hat on, but I mean, to me, to me, security is a program. And if you don't help solve the problem, you're just selling widgets. You're just looking for renewals and you're just trying to trade paper and make money. Right. And the real difference, and I know I'm foreshadowing in the future, but what, what do we need in the future? We need meaningful and sustainable risk reduction, which I think eludes a lot of people still. I think it does. And, and we could point to a variety of problems, uh, you know, that contribute, contribute to that. Let's touch on something you mentioned, because I think it's in, in one of these areas of, uh, of sort of the gold nuggets I'm always trying to mine out of these interviews. And that's around, you know, I would put it under networking. And that term is such a, a generic term, but you're talking about the quality of your relationships and not burning bridges. It's got a positive. It's two sides of a coin. Don't burn bridges uh, as much as possible, but also it's it's invest in the quality of your relationships with people. That's very much uh, you know uh, compatible with my view of my my career, not just in this industry, but in in, in entrepreneurship. Is you never know when relationships will you know will matter, and so you, you you do your best to maintain quality relationships with as many people as you can. And it is a small world, and I, I I'm shocked sometimes at, at how how small cybersecurity industry can be, even though it's grown incredibly rapidly since I got it in 1997, got into it, it's still, you run into people and you're like, oh my gosh, wow. I, I, or, or there's one degree of separation. That's every week. Like, oh, you know, so-and-so, so did I, we work together. You know, that yeah. that's real real common. So the idea of uh, people that we work with today, if you have a long view, if you're earlier in your career, especially, do think in terms of, I don't know when I'm going to see these people again, exit 
jobs gracefully. Uh, do it, you know, do it quality. Don't slam yeah. the door on your way out, right? Yep. We almost brought in a junior guy, but on his way out, he posted all sorts of incendiary crap on the Facebook page of the company and swiped a client list. And oh, it's like, don't touch that with a 10 foot pole. I don't think he's working in this industry or ever will again. I mean, something tangential somewhere else, but it's, I mean, that's just, that's just spiteful and not good human behavior anyway. But, but this, this one, especially, you never know who you're going to work with or against or for. Sometimes, you know, we come full circle back to, Hey, we, we went head to head on these last three, but now this client wants us to work together. and We're side by side on 70 sites for the next 18 months, deploying a combination of what they do and what we do. Right. So, um, and in the end, it's better for the client. They get the best of both worlds. Right. And, uh, and if we can bring our strengths and, and learn from each other, then that's better. It's when we start to draw these arbitrary walls and get into competitive crap that it's, I don't know, it's, 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 it's what I don't have a lot of personally, I have a lot of time for. Hence my, my comment to you, I'm a straight shooter. I'd rather say, look, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. And that's decent for these things, but it's not great for those. You make an informed decision. If you don't like me, I'll, I'll talk to you later. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm sort of wired wired similarly in that in that regard. I think. Um, let's talk about some of the the challenges uh, along this journey that you sort of just mapped out for us. What what are some challenges and 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 how, how did you overcome, especially from a perspective of like your career journey? You know, does anything jump to mind there? I've got other things I can sort of words like mentorship and things I can draw out some other experiences. But just curious if you just if I just say challenges and navigating them, anything come to mind? Well, I mean, challenges is such a, a wide topic. I mean, it, to me, my biggest challenge has been and always will be, and I think yours and everybody else in this industry is the education and the awareness, right? When you break it down, what we do isn't rocket science, but all of the obstacles required to get to where we need to do what we should be doing never seem to abate. And I remember talking to another industry insider that I, I know you know well, I'm pretty sure he's a fellow as well. Sort of self-congratulatory high five at one of these events said, yeah, oil and gas has this figured out. And I said, really? Because I know that, you know, good buddy of mine who's got a global role with a, a, a super major. I've seen his network diagram at one of his, you know, Indonesian plants and it is not at all corporate standard. So, you know what I mean? We've got a long ways to go. And and it's not it's not trivial. Overcoming inertia, overcoming. We went to do a POC somewhere, and the guy said, "You're not touching my crap. No one's putting spyware on my stuff, and there's no way ITs in my world ever. Forget it." Click. The conference call was over. You know, or or people want to do the easy, hit the easy button, and say, "Oh, this is quicker, faster, cheaper, easier." Never mind. It's a, a, a fraction of what you actually need. I can't tell you, Derek, how many people I'm talking to right now, finalizing proposals and working on, on content that have gone down the easy button route and are now back a year, 18 months later, maybe new people in the role because the, the ones who made the decision are gone, trying to do the right thing now. And, and that's the challenge. At, at the 20,000 foot view, the biggest challenge is, is education and overcoming inertia and, and helping people to see that they should be doing this and, and how they should be doing it, how important it is. If you want to take it a different angle, there are difficult people in this world. I've had clients, two clients from the same company, two different divisions. One used to say, like literally I'd show up to buy him lunch. He'd say, oh, hang on a second. He'd open the door to the control room and say, who's coming for lunch? Vendors buying to 30 people, right? Like that's just how he treated people that were in sales. 
And the other one, we sat literally on a Naga hide bench in, in the lobby of his, of his headquarters in some nondescript brown two-story building in the middle of nowhere. And we said, look, you're coming down the barrel of 100 things. I'm pretty good at 60 or 70 of them. 20 of them I know a bit about. I'll help you pick. The other 20 I don't know. But you let me be first right. I'll make sure that you have a program. He said, deal. We're done. We still have a relationship today, eight years later. And we're expanding and expanding into different business units. And to me, the challenge is finding that genuine ability to connect and to do the right thing and to know when to start and stop, right? Never mind all the other obstacles about budget and awareness and, well, cyber doesn't make us more oil or more money. Those are all absolutely prevalent. But it's, to me, it's it's a personal thing, but I have a problem with people that have agendas outside of, here's the problem that we're collectively trying to solve. Like he, he would he would put in, a, the bad guy would put in a scope for all this equipment. And then when we get the order, he'd say, okay, but hang on, downgrade them all and add 20 new big giant flat panels for my team. You know what I mean? So it's the same million dollars, but we're reallocating it so he could get this swag on the side. And I, have a, I have a real problem with that. And maybe I'm just being too much goody two-shoes boy scout there, but I have multiple challenges, I guess. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. You know, the people in, in, in the end of the day, my view is a lot of our challenges are people challenges, right? You know, we obviously have workforce shortages, so that's an easy people challenge. But even let's say that those of us in the industry, how we get along, there's dysfunction. You sort of reference that, you know, within the same company, you know, don't touch my networks and, and you know, siloed stuff and all things yeah. that eventually, eventually we have to tear all that down. I mean, it, it, none of that serves the the purpose. If we're if we're disjointed and not coordinated and not trusting, you know, in the community, sure, that's a problem. In the same company, that's devastating. And and yeah. and it's still out there to to two significant degree. There's people who hate IT versus OT. We shouldn't be saying that anymore. Like, okay, so I tend to not use that term, but I say there's dysfunction in many companies. Now we both know that sometimes is people from different parts of the company that hold yeah. some of the puzzle pieces. I'm a bridge, I'm for bridge building. You know, they hold all the answers and they should stay away or, you know, whatever. That's not going to work. What do you have to learn from each other? What can we learn from each other and how do we trust each other? And what programs are are managers and senior executives putting in place to build trust and to build teams that work together or hybrid teams? Right. I mean, it's that is not the way forward. We can have the best tools in the world and even third party expert, third party help like yourself. But if there's huge dysfunction within the company, that's still going to be a problem. Yep. Yep. No, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and and I guess my challenge to your point is is not enough people doing the right thing for the right reason. Just to sort of try and summarize what you said, but but I totally agree with what you're saying. Too many personal agendas or perspectives, and 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 losing sight of what the what the the end goal is, or what the better what the betterment for the organization is going to be, and how do we get there? Put the yeah. egos aside. Put the territorial aside. You know, that's the challenge. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, collaboration and teams. Uh, any, any themes, you know, pop up in your career of how important that's been, you know, working with building teams and working with colleagues. And I think there's a lot of people at various stages of the career that are are looking to become managers or are starting to manage people. And uh, some people are really, really smart and know, uh, maybe know, know the science or technology really, really well, but their, their skills are not as well developed in, in the managing of other human beings and coordination. Even if it's a dotted line, getting people to work together, any, any sort of nuggets there, like you know, here's some things that people should consider doing in that area. Yeah, my my biggest challenge, I mean, it, it's, it, there's two there's two factors to that I think the first is that there's not enough communication, right? Like, it, um, I see my wife and daughter like they're gonna get sprained thumbs on the on this little key thing, and I, and I have always joke, 
hey, there's a two-way audio app on that thing. You know what I mean? Like you just, you press that button and you can just do that, right? Like verbally. And, and I, I even have that internally in my organization. You know, we have a brand new project manager and project management office and there's two or three people in there now. And I'm like, hey, I'm building a big RFP. Can you give me a vanilla sort of project plan to submit as part of the evidence? And like, yeah, I'll see what I can do for you. And that's the end. And it's like two days later and I'm like, oh my God, do you have anything? Like what's going on? And I get this like, well, yeah, I've been working on it. Well, I'm like, okay, but you know, you never told me that, right? And in the absence of any information, I think two days have gone by and nothing's happened, right? Like, unfortunately, people in the absence in a vacuum will, will usually assume the worst or the negative or the, that something's yeah. not successful. And so I, I advocate to every single person I work with, pick up the phone, communicate, pick up the phone. If there's a back and forth in emails, like, you know what, let's just get on the phone, right? Or even if you haven't managed to do anything this week, like I'm going to do this right after today. Uh, I have a proposal. I promised the guy on Monday. It's now Wednesday afternoon. And I'll be like, hey, uh, you know, got a little delayed, but I promised to have something the next 20. And even yeah. though nothing's really happened, he at least knows I haven't forgotten about me. Right? And so there's a huge, huge deal that I think people forget in this instant, instant message, TikTok, Snapchat, little snippets of things that a, a super quick conversation can sometimes change literally everything. I once went on a, on a corporate retreat with a guy from a different department. We used to kind of sort of hate each other. We never really worked together. We're thrown on the same team. We had to do this problem solving at the end of it. We just kind of looked at each other and said, damn, you're pretty smart. I, you're, I like working with you. And he said, yeah, same thing. And to this day, we're still friends, right? But you never, we never knew until we actually had, we were forced to talk, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the second aspect though was, and this is a nod to some of what we talked about prior to this, is that some people are really good and, and it may be that, to me, it's the art of a creative way of telling some of their babies ugly. You know what I mean? You can't, you, it, the, the constructive stuff has to be just that. It has to be constructive, right? You, yeah. you can't, you can't like, oh my God, that sucked. Why did you do it that way? Right. And sometimes that comes out of people and it, and, and if you know them well enough and have that rapport and they know, you know, it's constructive, but if you don't, we have, we have one person in our organization that's like, oh my God, let me see that. And they'll rewrite it. But they come from a background where if I write something and you rewrite half of it and I come back, as long as I'm not changing the fundamentals, like we're changing how it's worded or phrased or maybe laid out. The two of us have more than two times better product if we do that, but we can't have an ego to do that. And not everybody understands that, right? People have egos, whether you like it or not. And I'm not saying tiptoe around it. I'm just saying, if I'm going to come to you and say, Derek, I liked how this session went today, or I love what we're doing with CC chapters, but honestly, I think this would be more effective. Or uh, to be frank, I think that's maybe a waste of time. Now I'm, and here's what I suggest is a better idea. Now we're having a conversation and we're developing each other and, and collaborating. Um, so number one, Frequency of communication, number two, the, the format of the communication, I, I think, are are what's been the single biggest uh, benefit. And it, and it works. When you build a team and you have people knowing what their strength is and how they come together, we went to a POC. There were three different people involved. All I did was tag along to buy the dinner. And halfway through, when we were done and over dinner, the, 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 our now client leaned over to me, grabbed a glass of wine and said, you guys get it. I've been searching seven years for somebody who gets it. And it wasn't me. It was that team that we had the prep. It was my technical field guy. It was a software development guy on the phone. You know what I mean? It was a marketing... They were all doing all the things he asked, but we had a meeting ahead of time. We figured out what we needed to do. We knew what the value prop was. We knew what this guy was looking for. And all of that genuine, we're trying to help you solve the problem came through. And it was a collaborative effort, which wouldn't have been done individually. There was no territorial, whatever. And we, we resonated. Now we've got a friend that that network now extends to this guy. He's now bringing us into other projects. He's bringing us into other business units. He's bringing, he's inviting us to their user events, right? Like it's, it's so much more beneficial then transactional, I need to get what I need and move on to the next relationship, right? So, Well, I, I think you just hit on some of the gold nuggets of your session right there. That, that was some stuff that we could all, we can all try to emulate. I mean, the one is, is 
the, what you said about communication, it wasn't, you know, frequency is kind of what you're talking about. Like, you know, get, get a message back quicker, but your qualification was even if it's short. And I think there's some magic to that, which people are like, Oh, I'm not ready. I don't have this big thing that I should, you know? So even, even I, when I listen to you, I'm like, I, I need to, you know, raise that bar again. I'm a big believer in what you said and raise that bar again and say, get a communication back to that party. Cause even if it's short, it synchronizes again and says, look, I haven't forgotten you or you're not not important or whatever. It, it, it implies a lot of things to just say, I haven't forgotten about you. I'm working. On, I don't have it done yet. And so I, I think that's I think that is a really good key advice, whether whether someone's just entering our workforce or whether they're they're a chief security officer. Uh, we probably all could benefit from like, oh, yeah, that 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 matters. That can improve yeah. the relationship huge. The other one is this idea of. Uh, and I think when we talk about the dysfunction and I'm really seeing, I don't know yet what CSA is going to do, that we have to play a role in in decreasing dysfunction, uh, you know, between teams. I mean, that that seems to be what something we should be trying to attack. We're not going to talk about solving the technological problem. That's, you know, other, others are working on that. That's not the Workforce Development Association's role. But dysfunction. And you you said, hey, when we we here's two people. Now, that, now, it doesn't matter in your particular case whether that was somebody that was working in an operational environment and somebody from IT cybersecurity, but we know there's dysfunction between those teams. Having an event, getting them together, having them solve a problem, not a, necessarily a real world problem in the, you know, in the in the business environment. Maybe it's a simulated problem. Maybe it's a it's one of those, you know, we're off in the woods and we're on a high wire or whatever, you know, a cope course or whatever. But you, yeah. you once you guys broke that barrier down. Then, yep. if you did need to work together afterwards, it was going to be very much improved, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yep. And and we did. In fact, we we almost thought each other out on coffee breaks and stuff to compare each other's hockey teams and and shoot shoot the shit yep. as it were between each other because we we built that rapport and it made made everything else so much easier. Like it's, it's funny. It's funny if if you're driving home from somewhere tonight and somebody cuts you off to get into your neighborhood or something, you're not going to be too pleased until you recognize that it's your neighbor. Like, oh, Steve, must be like getting this kid Hey, Steve. Right. But until you know, it's Steve, yeah. you're going to think, hey, you're going to get the finger in a minute here because that was a really jackass <laughs> move. Right. It's all context. Same exact behavior. Yeah. But it's yeah. your buddy or someone, you know, or have a background or an empathy for. And so it's completely different. Now, Rick, I think that's one of the big biggest takeaways of today that we can all be thinking about whether whatever part of the ecosystem we have, how can we improve that area? Let's build bridges to people and, uh, yeah. and get empathy for their situation, even if we may professionally disagree. And your idea about constructive criticism is is huge, right? You know, maybe it's a, a document and, and somebody says, hey, I can think I could help make that better. I, I agree. We Collectively, we can make something better. But it could also be just, uh, you know, disagreeing, fundamentally disagreeing on an approach. That's OK. How we communicate that is where people have some some skill upskilling they need to do. It's OK to disagree. In fact, that might even be valuable. But how we how we communicate it is everything. Yep. One one other note again to the younger maybe uh, and the mentorship issue giving forward sort of thing. One thing that I find my youngest consultants and people that I've had to teach the most about is it's okay to say I don't know. It's probably better to say I don't know. Let me get back to you than it is to make something up or be seen through as to not knowing or or not lying because I, yeah. I don't want to be that. You know, but but it's a complex world with lots of nuances and the ability to answer everything that anyone ever asks you is, is not reasonable. So be comfortable in your own skin, be humble and say, yes, this is what I know. This is what I don't, but I can get back to you sort of thing. You know? Well, you know, that was formative in my, in my military training, which was, I don't know. If, I don't know what I will find out, sir. I mean, that was in yeah. the training and it was reinforced over and over and over. And when I just, as I heard you talk, I, I had these memories flashback and I think that made sense, right? In a real world, very operating technology, you know, missiles and bullets flying or whatever, don't pretend to know something you don't know, you know, say yeah. you don't know and you'll go find out, be, be right up front about that. Yeah. It's key, right? 
Yeah. Or, or the, the other way I put it with trainees is I, I'd rather answer your questions and fix your mistakes, right? It, it's yeah. it's not without exception, but you know, in general. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so let's touch on one last topic as we're winding up mentorship. You mentioned it. I've mentioned it. What role has that played in your career journey, giving or receiving? I love to mentor. I loved having a team and seeing them grow. I'm, I'm pretty proud of the fact that my team that I left behind at Honeywell, I was the MC at one of their wedding and I was the groomsman at another one, right, for my team, which which says something about the fact that we worked hard together in the trenches and spent lots of time together. Um, I I love where I'm now for the mentorship. Um, I really, truly believe that that if you don't let your ego get in the way, you can learn from almost anybody, whether they're a threat to your role or comparative to what you're doing, whether they're something completely different. Um, and so I think mentorship is a huge deal. And, and one of the things I, I like to see, and I know I know you're itching to get at these from our conversations, is as the chapters open back up and, and even in the in the the regional presidents and the and the feeding to the other committees, uh, love to give back and love to share, but also love to learn. One of the funnest things I've done is I've, I've volunteered for my daughter's manager hockey team and been part of the committee with the overall hockey generation. And what's interesting is there's 57 teams and some of the creative team building things that other teams have come up with to do with their, their athletes, right? It's just, it's mind boggling. And if, if you think you've got your stuff figured out and here's my cookie cutter, what I'm going to do, it's fine. But it's amazing what you can learn when you, when you talk and you mentor, but, but also allow yourself to be mentored. And again, it doesn't have to be always uh, top down, right? It doesn't have to be my CEO teaching me how to better write a proposal. It can be me working with the field services guy and how he handled a particular client or an objection or whatever. And so in general, I mean, mentorship is the key component for anybody to get anywhere. And it doesn't always have to be formal, I don't think. You know, I have, I have a couple of employees who want their annual review by the, you know, the third month of the new year. And what does that mean? And what are my targets for next time? And they're very structured, right? And they want to know if I do 10 of these, do I get two of those? And it's like, that's good. But like, you know, there's more to it, right? So yeah, it's it, it goes in line with the communication, picking up the phone and talking and asking and learning and 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 that collaboration as well, right? You, you can get mentorship officially or unofficially, I think in, in multiple venues and, and uh, interactions. Absolutely, yeah, there's capital M mentorship and then there's small M and it's everywhere and there's opportunities every day for it, right? Micro mentorship, yeah. uh, it's not always formal. We meet every Tuesday or every other Tuesday at one o'clock. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, okay, well, uh, so just sort of wrapping up, what excites you about the future if you're looking ahead and I always like this, maybe if you tie it in, sometimes we have uh, people entering the workforce saying, if I want to become highly valuable five years from now, what, what should I be studying now to be highly valuable then? That's a little bit of future gazing to know. Is it, a, is it artificial intelligence? Is it machine learning? You know, what, what can they add to what they're doing or learning in cybersecurity to be maybe in a part or a segment of this whole overall puzzle pieces? You know, they could make them could make them a really valuable person. And so what, what are you excited about in the future and where would you point people to? potentially start, you know, boning up now to become a specialist or become knowledgeable in? You know, I'm, I'm a bit lame on that topic because I'm, I'm not much of a future gazer or trend watcher. But what I might offer is that um, there's so much diversity in this space. We talked about it in, a, in our pre-chat before the session. You literally can make a career. Technology has grown so big that you can literally make a career in any sort of discipline if you wanted, right? It could be just database. It could just be firewalls. I mean, we've got a guy who's a CCIE. He's booked six, seven, eight months out, right? Um, and he's only working for us at, at partial rates because he's already retired at 50-something. I mean, he only works 40-some years. So you could make a very lucrative thing if you wanted to chase the dollars, which is today AI and ML and, and, and you know, some of the, the bigger picture stuff. You could 
look at the trends that we're seeing retiring people, lack of staff, and, and say, well, that means that there's a real need for managed services or automation and and helping to solve problems. I mean, you look at the job seek cybersecurity database, I think 75% of them are management tasks, right? Not 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 architecture, not threat intelligence. Rob Lee's got them all signed up with wheelbarrows full of money to do all the threat intelligence in the world. Uh, but you know, there's there's doing something with that intelligence and actually the remediation. So I guess you could go for the high dollar if you wanted the in-demand stuff. You could go for the for sure I've got a job because this problem isn't going away forever, like the maintenance side. But what I think the the best advice you can give anybody is you need to like going to work, right? You need to enjoy what you're doing. And if if you don't like, you know, <laughs> we have a client who hires kids out of college and they come and they literally watch third-party application websites to see if there's security updates so that they stay NERCSIP compliant with application updates. I can't imagine graduating a big Texas tech school and having to go sit there and look at a website all day and fill out an Excel spreadsheet. Now, maybe that's a foot towards I want to work for this large energy company and see all the diversity from coal-fired to nuclear to transmission, regulation through to operations, whatever. That's cool if that floats your boat. But if you don't like what you're doing at the end of the day, you're gonna you're gonna be miserable, right? And you won't you won't you won't make, you won't make a success any way, shape, or form. I love what I'm doing. One of the questions we talked about what what motivates you? I love solving problems. When that client reached across and said to me. You guys get it. I've been searching. I the goosebumps, you know, and the, and the hair stood up on my arm, and I was like, "This is this is why I do this to make these connections." We're helping this guy solve a problem that he's been searching for for six or seven or eight years. So that's what floats my boat. And I know as long as it, this market is the way it is, I'll have a job and be able to continue to do that. So maybe, maybe I'm a little selfish. I haven't looked to the future because you know mine's already sort of figured out. But well, thank you, Rick, for sharing uh, all your perspectives and your story. All right. This is my favorite part of the show when I get to sort of tip my hat to a show I always enjoyed called Inside the Actor's Studio. It was broadcast for many, many years. I think it still is today, but the, the long-running host, James Lipton, has uh, unfortunately passed in, in recent history, uh, has passed on. And uh, he was the host of this, and he had a way uh, on the stage with all the great actors and actresses uh, of uh, over all these decades, you know, featuring uh, featuring interviews with them. And he ended the show with this thing, uh, the same questionnaire called the Pivot Questionnaire, which he borrowed. So I'm doing this in good faith. Uh, he borrowed from a French show, I think from the 30s, and I'm borrowing from his show from the last 50 years. So uh, we'll, we're going to do just the exact same questions. If you're ready, we'll do it. Sure. Yeah, let's okay. do it. What is your favorite word? Uh-huh. Thought about this one. Uh, it's something interesting and weird like serendipitous, I believe. Nice word. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Anything with double S is like crisps. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Problem solving, empowering somebody. When I see my kids do something I've been teaching them or my daughter's hockey team do a play in a game that they learn in, in practice, it just, it overwhelms. I think it's amazing. Awesome. Learning. What turns you off? Bullies. What is your favorite curse word or abbreviation? Uh, we'd have to go with the F-bomb on that one. 10 years in the bar, my wife working in the, in the hospital, we, uh, it gets a little <laughs> colorful right here sometimes. <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate or do you love? What sound or noise do you love? Uh, I love the sound of popcorn, popcorn popping. What sound or noise do you hate? My nieces with those little bubble pop things, which is very similar, but they're slightly different and very annoying. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? There's two on this, but since I haven't done it before, the attempt, I would want to be a pilot, fly planes. What profession would you not like to do? 
Funeral home director. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I hope he'd say something like, you know, good job, you made a difference. <laughs> Positive, <laughs> that is, right? Uh, yeah, uh, some sort of welcoming, yeah, good job, you know, you, you made a difference sort of thing, I guess. Awesome. You're not, you know, the, the controls on these pearly gates uh, seem to be not secure. Could you take a look at them? Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I, I would like to try out my friend's joke that says the closest I've ever been to a control system is the elevator at this hotel we're about to go stay at for this conference, right? Um, so I, I would play dumb on that one. I always like to say, you know, I don't want to be the smartest guy in the room because they're the ones that have to stay late to fix the problems, right? Like I'll show up for the party, but I get to leave when I'm done. So uh, leave the smart people to solve the problems. That's not me. All right. Well, thank you, Rick Kahn, VP of Solutions at Verve Industrial Protection, CSA founding fellow, uh, one of the very first chapter presidents in the whole existence of our organization in Calgary. You've been a friend and a, a loyal supporter uh, to, to me and to CSA, and I appreciate uh, that and what you do in the industry. Thank you, Rick. We'll look forward to uh, more, you know, more discussions and ideas and, and building the future out together. No, thank you. Like like I've said before, I'll say it again. I love what you're doing. I love the I love the, I love the notion. There's not enough of us. We need a network. And so every chance we get to do this, I'm game. So I appreciate the opportunity and the time today. All right. Well, take care. Be well, my friend. See you soon. Thanks. You too. Take care.